morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is internationally best-selling author Sandra Brown, who appeared on a panel I moderated at this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books of Authors in September uh, to discuss her new thriller, Overkill. Sandra, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you very much, Charlie. Appreciate the invitation. I'm glad to be here. So we sat on a panel together with um, with Scott Turo, who I know you've been on panels with before. Um, and the focus of the panel was to talk about thrillers. So for you, what do you see as sort of the the essential elements of the thriller? Well, I think the the key element is the pacing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what separates it from, just as an example, say a a cozy mystery, you know, the tea cozy mystery, um, where it's that's usually more methodical. It's a lot more about you know procedural and and finding the answer to something. Sometimes in a thriller, rather than trying to seek the answer to who done it. We already know who done it, <laughs> and yeah. we're trying to we're trying to prevent um, that individual from doing something else. Um, at least that's been my plotting, and of course I've had a lot of whodunits too. But I think the the key element that probably differentiates the thriller from other novels of suspense mystery is is the pacing that mm-hmm. it. There, the the ticking clock is usually shorter than it is in in other novels. Yeah, I think about in my in my book, and in, I think this is true in yours and in Scott's too. Um, that I, I feel like in terms of pacing, you have you have sort of your action sequences, and then you have your maybe slower investigative sequences, and and as you go farther through the novel, the action sequences get closer and closer together. Do you feel that's something that you, you do in the right. earth as well? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, I mean, in, in my experience of writing it, you have to set up the terrible trouble very quickly so mm-hmm. that the reader knows, you know, almost, I guess, by the end of the prologue or by the end of the first chapter that your protagonist is going to be confronting something pretty awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and it, Plotting 101 is that you make that terrible trouble even more terrible if you possibly can and and keep. But I, but I think you're right. You have to ratchet up that intensity, and that with 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 each plot spike or twist or turn or whatever, things just become worse and worse and worse. And as you say, they they are more concentrated. I think toward the the end of the book. That said, though, um, you know, sometimes novels can really lag in the middle, kind of dip in the middle. They get off to a great start and then they kind of dip and then they might pick up at the end if you still have your reader with you. 
And I think it's essential that something occurs toward the middle or at least two thirds through the book um, that kind of upsets the apple cart again. You yeah. know, it's a it's a flip. It's a um, it's something that hopefully the reader did not see coming. Hopefully the characters did not see coming yeah. uh, or something that they dread has happened. Maybe not the way they expected, but I think uh, I try to build in something that I know is going to be there in the middle to kind of spike things up again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You talked about the characters not knowing what's coming and the readers not knowing what's coming you know when when we were on the panel i think scott was the one who brought this up but we talked about um that one of the things about about any novel really but all especially about the thriller is sort of information management you know who knows what when um how, how do you decide when to let a the reader know a piece of information and also when the reader should know something that the that the character doesn't know character doesn't know it's doling out that information that I think uh, makes a suspense novel. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I, I said on the panel, you know, I know the secret uh, to writing a good suspense. I'll tell you later. <laughs> uh, so you, you, I think you, when I sit down to write, I try to plant a question in the reader's mind on the first page and first sentence, if I possibly can, but certainly by the end of the prologue of the first chapter, mm -hmm. there should be a subliminal question that I have planted in the reader's mind. And I try not to answer that question until as late in the book as I possibly can. Yeah. Along the way, I ask, I plant other questions, but the answers to those um are, are are dispersed you know they're they're dispensed uh along the way but the first question i have asked is the last question that i answer yeah, yeah so that so that you you might introduce another question in chapter three but they get the answer to that in chapter six right. but the one that i plant in chapter one, I try to wait until the the as far uh, to the end of the book as I possibly can go with it. Right. And that's the reason for writing the book. It's that that one thing that I know that the reader does not know. Mm -hmm. That's the, the difference between an idea and a story. When I get that aha, that's that's the secret I'm going to keep from the reader throughout the whole book. Yeah. And and then I know that I've got a story. It's the reason for telling the story. One thing I discovered when I turned to to writing a, a thriller, my most recent book, was I'd never really been much of an outliner before. And I found that with a thriller, I I had a little bit more need to lean on planning ahead. Uh, I didn't necessarily outline the whole book, but but I definitely relied on that more heavily than I usually do. What what is the what does the process look like for you from that? first idea to to the first draft? Well, I think I I used to not really outline, but but do a synopsis. And I kind of had more ducks in a row than I do now. And I don't know if possibly it's just because I, I trust myself more um, to start kind of flying by the seat of my pants. And um, but 
sometimes I find that the the surprises, the plot twist, just arise organically. Mm -hmm. You know, and and the in the in the writing, and it's like my fingers know more than my mind knows. That when I sit <laughs> down to the keyboard and I start writing. It's like my characters are more aware than I am of what's going to happen. And um, uh, I, I, I now just basically get, before I began, I basically get the protagonist, um, the antagonist, how they're going to be at cross purposes, what their individual goals are both in solving the problem, but also from a psychological and emotional level. If you start out with a character who's a total wreck, um, how is that individual going to right all the wrongs within him or herself mm -hmm. uh, over the course of, of solving the basic problem? So I kind of get all of that sorted out in my mind. And I know what the terrible trouble is going to be. I'm going to open with something. Uh, and I know how it's going to be resolved. And I try and build in, as I've referred to earlier, kind of that middle pivot yeah. um, where you think things are going to go pretty well. You think they're on to it. And I say they, my protagonist, because usually it's a couple, but they know they feel like they're on to it that that this is doable and then something will happen that they've got a whole new set of problems so i try to build in those essentials and the the short version of the answer is that i know where i'm going when i start i know where i'm going i don't necessarily know how i'm going to get there right and and to me that's the fun part <laughs> of, yeah. of, of being a novelist is that, you know, um, I like to be surprised too. And um, and I, I guess I, more than when I first began writing suspense novels or thrillers or whatever we're going to call them, mm -hmm. um, I, would, I would try to plot more than I do now. Now I, I kind of get the essentials and then put the characters in place and the story kind of unfolds on its own, but it's still, that's not to say it's easy. <laughs> it's <laughs> <so> hard. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the, about overkill and, and especially about what you call the terrible trouble, this, this medical case that sort of sets off the action. Yeah. Um, well, my hero is living the, you know, all American dream, uh, male version of the all American dream. He is a, um, Super Bowl MVP quarterback. Uh, he's having just the best season ever. He's the darling of the media. Uh, he's got everything going for him. And then he gets uh, news, and I'm not giving anything away here because it all happens within the first few pages, but he gets notification that his ex-wife, uh, for whom he has... Uh, a lot of <laughs> scorn and dislike uh, has been injured in a uh, assault and she is unresponsive and for all intents and purposes brain dead mm -hmm. uh, and due to a slip up in her advanced directives 
he is still responsible for whether or not to put it crudely, pull the plug. Yeah. And uh, so this launches him into, uh, you know, a global arena on a very sensitive subject where everyone that one would ask has a different opinion based on um, their religion, based on just their their emotional, you know, outlook on something like that. Um, and so it's a real sticky uh, situation and he just kind of abdicates. And then the story picks up four years later and um, and he's he's he thought he was done with it. But but he ain't. Yeah. <laughs> he's still got he's still got to deal with it. Yeah. That you you start with this um, this decision about whether or not to take somebody off of life support, which is obviously, as you said, a very complex decision. It brings in religious and moral and medical issues and, and lots of other things as well. When you give Zach that decision to make, you must be aware that readers are sitting at home going, "What what would I do in that in that circumstance?" To to what extent do you imagine readers and and what they're questions are, what their reactions are, how they're putting themselves into the text as you're actually writing? Well, I can only base that on, uh, you know, the the comments I get <clears throat> on, you know, various social media venues. Um, and it's, it's like, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it down. Uh, I had to see what he was going to do and how in the world are you going to get him out of this situation in a graceful manner? And honestly, when I started, I didn't know for sure <laughs> how I was going to do it. But I think anybody, and I know when during COVID, and I, I addressed this when we were in the panel that day, um, during COVID, we, we were seeing horror stories, you know, uh, impromptu cemeteries, you know, being set up outside of hospitals and things like that, that we couldn't just, we couldn't imagine. But the worst stories I thought were about families that had to make a decision or were being even sort of urged to make a decision that if their loved one did not have a, a viable chance for survival, that they would remove them from you know, equipment and life, life sustaining support systems. And so that another patient who had a better chance of survival would get that. And so I was just thinking, what a horrible, I mean, nobody in the world should have to make a decision like that about anybody, but especially about your life partner, your child, you know, your uh, parent. And, um, and so I, as an observer of the news and witnessing, I began thinking, gosh, what in the world would you do? How would you ever get over something like that? So that's where the idea came from. And I wanted my, my readers to have that visceral um, reaction to Zach's situation. It's like, oh my God, you know, what would I do? But these people whom we heard about, on the news were usually anonymous. We didn't know them by name. We, if we did know them by name, then the next night there was somebody else suffering the same problem. 
But if you were to make, from a storytelling point of view, to make Zach's situation worse, I made him somebody famous. Yeah. It would have been um, a different book had the character been struggling with this moral dilemma privately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but to have to struggle with that dilemma uh, with a spotlight, you know, sh shined on you um, made, you know, Zach's situation just untenable. Yeah. And um, and it, you know, affected his career affected the rest of his life and um you know he gets he gets both congratulated and scorned for what he you know what he's done and there was no it was a no-win situation he couldn't please everybody because as i said earlier everybody had a a different opinion on this very complicated uh complex decision yeah yeah now i'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you have never played football in the NFL. Um, and <laughs> you created a character who is, uh, who's an NFL star quarterback. Um, how do you, how do you get into the head of somebody that's that, uh, that's that different from you? How, where did, where did Zach come from and, and why did you want him to have that particular type of celebrity? Well, he could have had he could have had any. It's just that I happen to really love football, and um, uh, he's the he's the second football player um, yeah. I've written about actually. But I grew up on it, and um, I I have known players in the NFL, and I know how. It, it it actually, I mean, everything comes second to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you have to have such a passion for it. And it's like, you know, a professional tennis player or a professional figure skater or a musician or whatever it is. When you get to that level, then you have kind of subjugated everything else in your life to that to the pursuit of that perfection, that level, an Olympiad, uh, Olympian. I mean, the, you know, they, they have to live, breathe. I mean, it, it is their life. And so um, I, I thought, you know, Zach lived to play the game. He loved to play the game. He was a good leader. He had, you know, I referred to several times his leadership qualities um, and how he re accepted responsibility when things didn't, when a play didn't go so well. Um, so I just, I thought that would be a, he would be an interesting character to write about. And uh, at the same time, uh, Tom Brady was, you know, having to make a life decision about retirement and everything. And I thought, you know, give the guy a break. Uh, you know, he's in the spotlight. Everybody's reporting on his marriage, on his relationship with his children, with his, you know, uh, friends and the teammates and his coach. And it, it's like, you know, his life was in a bubble, an invisible bubble. And um, so I thought that would be really tough. And he still has to be Tom Brady on Sunday afternoon, you yeah. know, and I'm not a big Brady fan, but I'm just he was a. Uh, a uh, good example to use of how it 
it really controls your life, every aspect of it. Well, and I think one of the things that really comes out in this novel, and and there've been a lot of novels lately that are sort of about celebrity. I think of what Taylor Jenkins Reid is doing, for instance, um, is the you know as you said the sort of almost no win situation of being a celebrity that in, in almost any situation, whichever choice you make, there are going to be voices saying that you've made the wrong choice. Well, know? and I think I think Charlie, one of the themes is the price of fame. Is it? Is it worth the price mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, not to be able to go shopping or go to the movie or go to Whataburger <laughs> yeah. without, you know, everybody, somebody reporting on it? Yeah. And uh, whether you're, you know, a member of the royal family or, or you're the, the person with the 15 minutes of fame. Um, and that time span you know you're it would be i think it would be awful um to not have that privacy and and one of the recurring kind of things that comes out in overkill with zach is like the the price that you pay of being famous um it can be glorious it can be wonderful and he enjoyed he admitted it he enjoyed fans coming up you know and asking for his autograph and something like that and and um but it by the same token the fame ruined his life when it when when he he even says when fame turned to infamy and that's when you know it's like gosh i've sacrificed so much to being famous well, let's switch from your protagonist to your antagonist. Um, you know, one of the things I noticed reading your novel and Scott's novel and my novel all right in a row is that we have we all have these protagonists who often occupy sort of a moral gray area. You know, sometimes what they do, you can make arguments about whether it's right or wrong. Right. And that, right. that to me makes for really interesting storytelling. But the antagonists, the villains, don't really occupy a moral gray area. They're just pretty <laughs> bad people. So so tell us about a little bit about your villain, how you created him, how you expect readers to react to him. Well, uh, I've always thought the villain that doesn't look like one is the scariest. Yeah. Um, because they're insidious. You don't see them. You don't um, avoid them. Um, if someone looks threatening, then you avoid them. But to me, the really worst villain is the seducer. It's the person who um, who can get just get into your life and and probably in an ingratiating way, you know, and you don't you don't see the villainy until it, it's too late. Mm-hmm. And that's the way Evan was. He's total sociopath. Yeah. Um, narcissism, uh, you know, off the charts, because he truly thought he could do nothing wrong. Rules did not apply to him. Um, and I thought he made a great villain because he was the seducer and he was so canny, you know, so clever. Um, and, and the way he would you know, get into someone's life and controlling his friends, mind control. So there were two things going here. Uh, one, w- the abuse of power and 
the second, how you can use that power to seduce your victim. Uh, not always in a sexual way, but just in the way that you come across as a friend, you know, you come across as doing them a favor. Um, and somebody somewhere smarter than I am uh, said sometime that your book is only as good as your villain, mm -hmm. that it has to be somebody or something that's really vicious enough to destroy the protagonist because the reason we're reading the book is that we want to worry about the protagonist of being able to overcome uh, the villain. So the villain has to be somebody or something that is larger than life in my estimation that that is if it's evil it's really evil and uh, somebody with no conscience you know, in yeah. my estimation, it's pretty evil. And that's the way Evan was. You know, he was totally without conscience. So I, one of the things I noticed that the villain and the hero have in common is that they're both wealthy. I mean, wealth pl definitely plays a role in this novel. Um, I mean, in one case, you could argue that it's inherited. In the other case, maybe that it's earned. But there's a long tradition of, in, in American film especially, but in novels too, of sort of, the the rich guys being the bad guys. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see the the sort of whole issue of wealth and the way these two men react very differently to wealth uh, playing out in the novel? Well, I haven't really thought of that. Um, I guess it was if I had made Evan somebody that couldn't afford the lifestyle that he had, then I would have had to come up with a different event that set this whole thing into place yeah, yeah. you know there wouldn't have been a lavish party there wouldn't have been the toadies that you know he gets to go along with him um there wouldn't have been uh the legal machinations that he was able to afford when someone you know without those means would have had to have a you know um uh, a a pro bono lawyer defense lawyer. So I guess when I was plotting it, I didn't really set out to make him particularly rich, but it was just that if he had been somebody that was not, then it would have been a different story. It would have been, I don't know, maybe more internalized instead of, you know, just out there. Um, but then Zach's uh, reaction to his wealth, he obviously is is very comfortable, but he doesn't live particularly lavishly. Yeah. You know, he he's in fact lives like a recluse. He's not, you know, but he's used his means to do good for other people. And he does it anonymously. And that's another thing. Eben was very lavish and ostentatious. And Zach about his you know, his wealth was very low key. It was almost like a, you know, I think he'd much rather be playing football than counting his money, you know, or spending or even spending his money. I just I found it a really interesting contrast between, you know, I, I, I think about paraphrasing Spider-Man, you know, with, with great wealth comes great responsibility. And Zach right. kind of tries to live up to that responsibility and 
and Evan definitely does not. Um, but there is one way in which Zach uh, uses his wealth that makes me insanely jealous, and that is this amazing house that he has in the North Carolina mountains. Um, talk, tell us a little bit about, about where he lives and about your own history with, with those mountains and, and why you wanted to put him up there. Well, uh, first of all, it's just I know you live in the great state of North Carolina and it's just <laughs> one of my favorite states because it's so pretty and it's it's it has, you know, a lot of diversity. You've got that long coastline and the Outer Banks and all that. But then you also in Western North Carolina have the amazing mountains. And uh, I had visited several times, several years in a row, um, the um uh, a community up there. And um, I love the terrain, but it's a very, it can be a very hostile terrain. So I've written uh, two books previous to this one set there. One was called Chill Factor, in which a woman actually gets caught uh, in an ice storm, can't get off the mountain, and she's caught in this uh, dwelling with a man believed to be uh, a serial killer. And then another one, it was called Mean Street, and a woman is abducted um, when she goes for a run in the mountains. And so I think they're intriguing because the the climate is um, it it's so variable, you know. And it it and in Overkill, the weather is really becomes another character. It's another menace that you know the protagonists have to deal with and overcome. And I used it. Um, and so, but at Zach's house, I had actually been in houses um, of affluent people who visited up there. And so I kind of designed his house in my mind to look like some of the homes that, that I saw. And I thought he had great taste. Did, <laughs> I was <right>. like, <laughs> I want to live there. <laughs> I, I would love if he made that house to an Airbnb, you know, that would right. Be, no kidding. Um, well, I mean, I, it also fascinated me because I spent my summers in a different part of the North Carolina mountains in a very modest house uh, looking out over hayfields, but yet I was still very much aware that there was this sort of divide between part-time or summer residents or wealthy people who came in and built a big fancy house, and then the people who lived there full-time, who in those days were were mostly dairy farmers, but you have local law enforcement and some other locals there, um, and I just, I like the way you're able to sort of put juxtapose those those two and, and see how Zach does and doesn't fit into this community that he sort of adopted. Yeah, well, he he's very uh, he was able to purchase, you know, as I said, one side of the mountain. But on the other side, it's being overdeveloped in his estimation. And of course, the word overdeveloped can be debated all day um, and everyone would would have a different opinion and pe people really become polarized over leaving things as they are. Uh, but, but it's a contradiction because they're there. <laughs> and so it's like, uh, when do you draw the line? Um, but I, I, you know, Zach is very against that overdevelopment because he's afraid. I think in a way he sees it as an encroachment onto his privacy. Mm -hmm. And that's the number one thing that, you know, he covets is his privacy. He wants no part of the fame anymore. Um, 
He's retreated up there rather cowardly in a way. Um, and and he just wants to be left alone. And so I, I think that in my mind, my subconscious mind as the writer, as the creator of the story, is that um, he probably saw that as a as an invasion. And it was his fear factor of being intruded upon, yeah. you know, that that uh, that 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 development is kind of an embodiment um, of his fear of of being overtaken again. When when I went back to look over my novel, The Enigma Affair, we were getting ready to have this panel, and I thought, you know, what what can I say about thrillers? And and I thought to myself, well, how did I learn about writing thrillers? Why do I know about some of these things? Like you know, you talked about the 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 problem at the beginning or the sudden reversal of fortune or some pacing and these things. And I realized that I think I learned a lot of it, not from reading other books, but from Alfred Hitchcock, from his films and from his interviews. Um, So much of what I knew sort of internally about that was because I'd studied him even when I was in high school. What what were your influences in, in the suspense world? Well, you you nailed it. Uh, Hitchcock was amazing, uh, and and I've read. My my son is a film student, and so we've talked about it. And he's not even a big fan of of Hitchcock's movies, but he said he did know uh, when he talked about making them. He said some brilliant things, and it was like you know the explosion is not scary anticipating the explosion is what's scary. And um, the only thing I can equate it to is one time I was writing a book called Slow Heat in Heaven, and I had actually been out to a ranch uh, here, very sort of close to me where I live in Texas. And on this ranch, the owner had captured like a six foot long rattlesnake. And only takes a little baby rattlesnake to be lethal. But this this was a, I mean, a monster. And he had put it in an oil drum. And it was all coiled up in that oil drum. And yeah, and he had had put uh, like a piece of plywood with this big boulder over it to keep it in there. But you could hear it rattling, could hear it rattling. And it was chilling. And of course, I didn't even get out of the car. I stayed like 20 yards away from that oil drum because it was like, oh my gosh. And my friend who was sitting in the car with me said, gosh, that's so scary just hearing that all the time, that that rattle, because the oil drum, you know, of course, is magnifying it. And I sat there for a minute and I said, but you know what would be really scary? If it stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and and you were the one who had to go over there <laughs> and take that boulder off the that piece of plywood and open that barrel up. And um, she said, "Gosh, you're right." And so I actually used that in a book where I had a guy who kept a pet rattlesnake, and and it stopped rattling, and um, because I thought that's scary. And so that was kind of. Hitchcockian, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, when when the the scary part is the question mark, it's the anticipation of something about to happen. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I I noticed and, and learned from Hitchcock, I think, is a lot of times the characters, the protagonists are are really almost completely on their own because for one reason or another, they can't really turn to law enforcement either. They're oh, absolutely, so, absolutely. And and you have that to a certain extent. You have that here. What talk about the role that that law enforcement and working outside law enforcement plays in in this novel? Well, I try to build that in actually because I think the the isolation, the idea of the isolation that these, in my case, it's usually you know the male and female, the hero and the heroine are. One of the elements of a Sandra Brown, I think, that is kind of a trademark element is that you've got to have them sharing space, you've got to have them with a common problem, but a different approach so that they're uh, solving it, so that they're at cross purposes, but at the same time, they're codependent. Uh, One needs the other. Without the other, they won't be able to do what they want to do. So that forces them together. But at the same time, they're kind of isolated from everybody else. And if you noticed in Overkill, like they're in the airport and there are other people around, but it's really their little, you know, it's it's Zach, it's Kate, the heroine, and it's Bing, his football co- And they're trying to, to decide what they're going to do from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I do build in that sense of isolation. And secondly, uh, sometimes, you know, they don't trust the acumen or efficiency of law enforcement and they or they can't convince law enforcement that this is a problem. And I was watching a movie last night and it was the same thing. The guy's wife goes missing at a service station and he's trying he's gone to the police and he says, you don't understand. You know, she was right there and then she was gone. And of course the police officer is kind of laid back saying, well, she's probably there. She's probably here. And he says, you're not listening to me. You know, so that's kind of a I think that's a tool that a lot of storytellers use is perhaps the incompetency or the untrustworthiness of of law enforcement. So in in my case, I I needed them to have a foil at the beginning, but I knew that at the end of the book, when things are really coming to a head, they might need an ally and and it would be an ally that they would have to convince. Uh, so I built in the, the deputy, you know, who is, is unscrupulous, (laughs) who is corrupt. Um, but you know, I'm not, I don't want to get anything away, but, uh, um, but it, it, he was, he was used as both a foil and an ally, which sometimes happens, you know? So there's, a, again, trying not to give anything away, there's a character in this novel who is going to have some legal issues if certain conditions come to be. Um, and for you to set that up, you you had to have, you know, done some research about the laws of, of Georgia right. and North Carolina. How, talk a little bit about that, that process. How do you do your sort of legal background research? Well, I had to, as you say, had to find out what kind of loophole I could use. Mm -hmm. And um, because typically divorce automatically uh, nullifies any advanced directives. Uh, So I had to find a loophole uh, 
what would happen where Zach, my protagonist, is confronted with the surprise realization that he's still responsible for this ex-wife for whom he has nothing but contempt. And uh, so I, I did. I had to find, I went into Georgia laws about it. I went into North Carolina Georgia, uh, laws about it. I actually have a sister who writes research papers for internet, different things. And so I went to her and I said, find me a loophole and <laughs> find me a state where this could, you know, and it wouldn't necessarily be a regular thing. It could be totally aberrant and take everybody by surprise. And uh, so it had to be um, authentic. It had to be real, but not something that's going to happen every day. And so within the realm of possibility, improbable, but within the realm of possibility. And, and I, I, she found a thing and it's, if there was a proviso that was added that said, you know, uh, this is going to happen until you should divorce. Uh, however, unless there's an additional proviso. And so we learned that, you know, one was made. Yeah. So I did have to do quite a, I spent quite a bit of, of hours, um, quite a number of hours uh, researching that because it had to be correct uh, and it had to be slippery. You know, it yeah. had to be, I had to figure out how it was going to work. Um, tell us about your title. I, I, I noticed, I haven't done this in, in my books, but I noticed a lot of the thrillers I've, I've seen lately have these one word titles. Scott's was a one word title. Yours is titled Overkill. Where where did that come from? What's your process for for figuring out a title for the story? Uh, it's it's an it's a arduous process. <laughs> <laughs> you know how I'm sure you've you've run into this, Charlie, also that sometimes the title is there immediately. Yeah. Sometimes you know it immediately. When I set out to write envy i was trying to you know think of a plot and i saw thought what if you had these two characters who were side by side best friends and they were working toward the same on the same career path but one became successful and one didn't and and it created this envy and i thought that's the title you know i, I had the title the the day i started thinking of the story another one when, when I wrote the one, it was about the, the one in North Carolina where the woman gets abduct, abducted. And I thought it's got to be a really dark character with that that looks OK on the surface. He's really kind guy, nice guy, almost gentle, but he has a real main streak. And I thought there's my title. Yeah. I knew it would look good on the book, you know, the the alliteration and um but overkill, I played with I played with several, and I sent several um, into my uh, editor, and he said, "Oh, I like overkill. I think it'd be you know great." But then there have been times where I have sit in untitled Sandra Brown, yeah. <laughs> and they will be going to press <laughs> and say. <laughs> We really need a title for this book by Monday morning, you know, so I will spend the weekend just beating my brains out um, for a title. So I find them either 
very easy are like pulling hen's teeth. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's one one process or the other. Yeah, I've had exactly the same and dichotomy you've also of experience. Got to get, yeah. You've also got to get one that um, that pleases the accounts, yeah. uh, that pleases the sales, that the sales force, when you give them the title, they go, ooh, <laughs> or, they, or they go, no, <laughs> you know, it doesn't grab me. So it it's, uh, but it's still my name is always remind them it's my name on the book. So yeah. <laughs> has to be my title. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words. And I, you've heard some of these before at our panel discussion, but this time you get to answer all of them. So if you're ready, we'll begin. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? I think everlasting is a good word because it um, it means it can't be for just, you know, it can't be for just now. But it also means that whatever decision you're making now is either going to be good or bad forever. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I hate the word turned, T-U-R-N-E-D, because... I find I can write three sentences and all three sentences will have turned. And I thought this person is spinning. <laughs> <laughs> so he's trying to come across another way to say they're going another direction. Hate the word turned. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to write? Hilton Head. Oh. Uh, I have a, I have a house on Hilton Head and, um, I, I go there and try to shut down my life. You know, I don't have any appointments. I don't make any social engagements that are going to happen before six o'clock in the evening. Um, and it's uh, it's just a beautiful environment to me. Um, and I feel very, uh, I have a real affinity you know, for the area. And, and so I, I love to write there. Where could you never write? New York city. <laughs> it, cool. It's full of distractions. Yeah. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Complete sentences. Mm -hmm. What was the first book you remember reading? You asked me this question in the panel and I said, Nancy Drew. But I've been thinking about that ever since. And I think the first books I read were probably that I read to myself were probably the Bobsy Twins. Yeah. yeah. That goes way, 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 way back. What are you reading now? I am. What am I reading now? Oh, I just finished um, a historical romance and I started reading a old Nicholas Sparks book mm -hmm. set in North Carolina. Yeah. What book would you like to have written? The Eye of the Needle. Mm, yeah. Um, what sort of book would you You're like probably. to? Yeah. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? A family saga, set in uh, start in the nineteen twenties, uh, when flight was becoming part of the the our our lives and the east texas oil boom uh and carry it up through like the 1960s yeah and finally what would you like to hear a reader tell you 
Well, what I love to hear is I just couldn't put it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that feeling. Yeah. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Sandra Brown, whose novel Overkill is available wherever books are sold. Sandra, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Charlie. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Australian best-selling novelist Kate Forsyth about her book, The Crimson Thread. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Music